joining us for the Jewish Boston Israel 360 podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Anzevin, and I'm here with Israel 360's Dan Seligson. We're talking today about a Jewish holiday that might not be on your radar every year, but Tu B'Shvat is upon us. Tu B'Shvat is sometimes called the Jewish Earth Day, and fun fact, it's one of four Jewish New Years in Judaism. It is the New Year of the Trees. Fruit trees have a very special status in the Torah because of their importance in sustaining life and their symbolism of God's favor. In the Kabbalistic, mystical Jewish tradition, all physical forms, including people, have within them a spark or sparkle of the divine presence. Human actions and positive actions can release these little sparks and help increase God's presence in the world. This is similar to some kinds of nuts or fruits which have seeds within them. So on Tu B'Shvat, Jews eat certain fruits in a Seder or meal associated with the land of Israel. The Seder features uh, seven species associated with Israel, wheat, barley, grapes, figs, pomegranates, olives, and dates. In modern times, Tu B'Shvat has become a symbol of both the Zionist attachment to the land of Israel, as well as the Jewish environmental movement. For environmentalists, Tu B'Shvat educates us about the Jewish tradition's advocacy of responsible stewardship of the earth. Dan, tell us a little bit about our guest today. So I think we have a guest with us today who has a lot of spark, and I think he's a perfect person to talk to us about Tu B'Shvat and how it relates to Israel's ecology and environment. Dr. Alon Tal is one of the pioneers of Israel's environmental movement. He founded the Israel Union for Environmental Defense, the Arava Institute for Environmental Studies, and co-founded a group called EcoPeace. In addition to authoring six books, he won the prestigious Charles Bronfman Prize, and we're lucky enough to have him join us from Tel Aviv, where he is uh, at Tel Aviv University as professor and chair of the Department of Public Policy. Alon, as an environmentalist, how do you celebrate or how do you mark this holiday? Well, certainly when I had kids, I was planting a lot of trees. And for 12 years, I was on the international board of the Jewish National Fund. And I went to more tree planting ceremonies than you can shake a stick at. This year, I'm actually doing it be, uh, with the 40th anniversary of Israel's uh, conservative Masorti movement, which was established on Tu B'Shvat. It's also the birthday of Israel's Knesset, for that, what that's worth. But most of all, we try to get outside, and it's really the, the turning point when the flowers really start to come out, the so-called shkedia, the almond tree blossoms, and it's just a good time to be uh, with this wonderful land of Israel. It's amazing to think that you guys are looking at blooming trees while we're looking at um, snow banks that are beginning to turn that kind of brownish gray color that they're going to keep until August. So Yeah, um, one, one, forgets, <laughs> we're a little... you, one forgets how driven the... Uh, the Jewish calendar is by the seasons in Israel. When I was in on sabbatical in, in New Zealand, and people were giving their kids, you know, bathing suits for Hanukkah, it also seemed a little bit peculiar. So yeah, but <laughs> so I guess you know the the big picture. It, it's a good time to think about this because it is a, the renewal of the year. Uh, where do you think Israel is environmentally? What is the if you could give Israel a, a grade for environmental health? in the, this early part of 2018, what would you give it? And on a related note, what do you think the most glaring concerns are right now? Well, if I was Charles Dickens, I'd probably say it was the best of times or the worst of times or something like that. Um, in one hand, we can point to some astonishing uh, progress in Israel over the years. Um, there's no question that for uh, 2,000 years, 
Israel's forests were devastated. That's not Zionist propaganda. That's supported by any number of, of aerial photographs from 100 years ago. And uh, the fact that we have returned such vegetation, 60% of the Jerusalem hills are forested. Every one of those trees was planted by people or came as a second generation forest. So that's something we can be really proud of in terms of Israel's performance. I think the, the water scarcity um, resourcefulness we've shown over the, over the past 70 years also is, is breathtaking. Um, you know, when you look at this region and our neighbors and how water is really a crisis level, and even though we're facing our fifth or sixth consecutive year of drought, Israelis really don't feel it because between desalination, wastewater reuse, and drip irrigation, we've done some tremendous things, and the world uh, does show interest, and for good reason. But there's also a half of the, half of the cup which is less full, and we can look with uh, somewhat, I would say, uh, dismay or embarrassment or concern over Israel's spiraling greenhouse gas emissions, the uh, collapse of biodiversity, uh, which is starting to happen in the last three, four years, some very, very disconcerting signs. We can look at the, the traffic and the associated emissions associated with that. So there are um, really, like I said, some good news and some very bad news. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about trees in Israel. Um, Tubishvat is, of course, a new year for the trees or the birthday of the trees. Uh, you wrote all of the trees in the forest um, several years ago. Israel has always been planting trees. Would you say this is one of Israel's environmental successes? Indeed, I would. It's interesting. I can't think of another national movement that linked its, at least in initial stages, with the notion of afforestation. In other words, really, uh, when the country was first being established in 1949, uh, it's amazing to see David Ben-Gurion getting up in front of the Knesset and, and calling for tree planting as his operational uh, agenda. And let's remember that at the time, you know, there were you know, hundreds of thousands of Holocaust survivors who were basically uh, unemployed, very unhappy, and living in refugee uh, tents or whatever. But he saw trees not only as a way of sort of reestablishing the connection between the Jewish people and the land of Israel, and he not only saw it as a way of providing employment to these people, if you had a shovel, you could hire two people, but he saw it as something more symbolic, uh, that our presence, the Jewish people's presence in this third Jewish commonwealth has to be a blessing on the land. And I think this was something that was not only rhetoric in that time, but it was really a, a budgetary commitment an operational uh, agenda for the, for the new Jewish state. And although perhaps we don't have the zeal of those initial fa uh, founding fathers in terms of forestry, Israel still plants a lot of trees, and I'm glad to say we're planting smarter with greater diversity and uh, in, uh, attention to indigenous integrity. Um, can you tell us a little bit about how Zionism sort of married um, that idea of planting trees and renewal to the holiday of Tu B'Shvat? Well, you know, Tu B'Shvat is a holiday which is really uniquely Israeli. In other words, it, it appears in the Mishnah when they have the discussion about the different New Years, and it's like several Jewish New Years, Rosh Hashanah is one of them, but the, the New Year for the trees is in um, is really on this 15th day of Shvat. There's a fascinating debate in the Mishnah between Hillel and Shammai where uh, Beit Hillel says it should be the 15th day of Shvat, and Shammai says it should be the first day of Shvat. And Ostensibly, you think it's just another one of these arcane debates between these two hair-splitting rabbinical schools of thought. But in fact, my friend Michael Cohen, who works at the Av Institute, explains that it's something much more profound. The 
school of uh, Shammai is based was based near the coast of Israel, where the Hillel school was set up near the Judean hills. And if you look at Israeli rain patterns, and today we had copious quantities of rain in the coast, the earlier flooding and major storms come on the east coast, on the, on the Israeli coast near the Mediterranean, and later Jerusalem and the hills get the heavy rains. And so basically this debate between Hillel and Shammai about what day is Tubishvat is really something that is determining where the geographical epicenter of the country is. And it turns out that Bay Hill one. So Jerusalem is our capital. So those are the kind of connections, I think, which we link to when we moved back to Israel. Of course, the holiday of Tu B'Shvat got a rebirth in the Middle Ages in Sfat with the mystics who created the famous Tu B'Shvat seders. And then the modern Zionists really saw this as a way of celebrating our return to our land. And in fact, it's an indigenous people's kind of celebration to bring back the, the kind of trees and, and forests that were here so many years ago. Absolutely. Um, so how are important are trees to Israel's ecosystem and environment today? Well, it's an interesting thing. First of all, trees have been one of the most ecologically controversial topics within Israel's environmental community for years because Israel's initial tree planting were very much monocultures, uh, which were largely Jerusalem pine trees. That's what we call them. The world calls them Aleppo pines. But the notion that the trees of Israel um, were uh, only pine trees really bothered the early nature lovers, and they claimed that these were pine forests. In fact, what happened uh, over time was that many of these pine forests did pass on, but they, the second forest, the second generation forests, which have come in their, in their midst, are really much more diverse. And the claims that the uh, Aleppo or Jerusalem pine is not an indigenous tree are, have proven now historically to be false. We have lots of signs of ancient wood which survives in this kind of tree. So, so in fact, when we look at the, um, the trees we plant in Israel, we celebrate them as a critical part of the ecosystem because there are many kinds of species which thrive in the forests. And if nothing else, planting so many forests, again, 8% of the land of Israel is, is designated as forest, is really providing homes to animals which often are being, uh, how should they put it, pushed out of their natural habitat by the burgeoning uh, population of humans. And so having the, the forest is not only pretty and good place of recreation, but it's also a home for animals. Yeah, let's talk a little bit more about that burgeoning population. Um, I think last year you spoke to the Jerusalem Post uh, and you talked about the Israeli population growth as being unsustainable. Um, so how is that affecting uh, the fragility of the environment? Um, and what about that in the West Bank um, settlements or Palestinian communities? Well, you know, uh, Miriam, I hope our listeners are ready for quite a diatribe. I spend at least two or three. Go for it. Go two, for it. That was what I call a fat pitch in, in the in the baseball <laughs> world. But but I spent about two three days a week running around Israel talking about this challenge of sustainable population. You know, when Israel was established, there were basically a million people living here in 1950, and then there were two million people in 1960, three million people in 1970, and go to 8.79 million people today. We're almost at 9 million people. And the country went from a very empty and sparsely populated land to essentially the most crowded Western world, uh, Western country in the world. And the Central Bureau of Statistics in Israel tells us that the population will double over the next 30 years. In other words, we'll be talking, looking at 60 or 16 or 17 million people before you know it. 
And this is something which we all should be concerned about because, you know, there's a basic axiom of ecology which says more people, less nature. The reason why the planet Earth has lost 52% of the animals in nature over the last 40 years is because of habitat loss, fragmentation, exploitation, and you name it. And Israel is a quintessential extreme case of that. Every year in this country, we have to build 75,000 new housing units just to stay in place, just to try to um, provide a new generation of young people a place to live. And uh, the result is, is that this urban sprawl is taking now 20 square kilometers of open space a year. And it's relentless. And so at some point or the other, we're going to have to make a decision. If we really want to have more people here, the magnificent ecosystems and the inherent biodiversity land will be lost. So I, I, uh, I try to bring this issue up. It's a very complicated issue because fertility is something that we do well in Israel. We have a uh, 3.1 kids per family, almost twice the OECD level. And of course, after the Holocaust, there was tremendous emphasis put on replacing the 6 million. But we have replaced the 6 million today. And Israel now really is a, a land which is quite full. And we have to think about whether it's sustainable. And I always argue that in a closed system, the notion of infinite growth is really uh, impossible. So it was interesting when I went to Israel in, I think, 2013 and visited the desalination plant at Hadera. Um, you know, when you have an, a, a large and growing population and you basically have one source of fresh water, to be able to get water from the ocean is it's literally a miracle. I mean, it, it was incredible. It's we like, it's like in, a sci-fi movie. Took a Don't you feel like it was sci-fi when you first saw it? It, it was incredible. We, we got to go inside and, and during after our 20-minute tour, they gave us all a plastic cup and they said, during the 20 minutes that you were in here, this you know six ounces of water went through our filters from the ocean and has now become drinking water that you're drinking right now. And I'm like, mind blown. I was, you know, I, I couldn't believe it. But I I'm wondering if there is a... If, is there any environmental downside to desalinated water? Does it use a tremendous amount of electricity doing it to this scale? Um, you know, at, at some point, it seems almost too perfect. Is there anything that, that we should worry about with the overall environmental health of the country because of its reliance on desalinated water? Okay, well, this is a, this is a really interesting question. And you caught me at a time when I just finished writing an article about it. So I'll give you some facts. Um, Israel, when it makes desalinized water, we have one of the most efficient desalination uh, series of facilities. We use about 3.5 kilowatt hours per, what we call, cubic meter of water. That's 1,000 liters of water. So on the one hand, that's unbelievable. On the other hand, Israel's desalination network uses up almost 4% of the country's electricity. The entire water delivery system uses 8%. So... If Israel's electricity uh, system and the way we generated energy was renewable and clean, as many countries are, as a Denmark is, or as a Costa Rica is, or an Iceland, then I think we could all basically say, this is miraculous technology and let's celebrate. And when you come to Israel, take a 20-minute shower, no problem. But the fact of the matter is, is that Israel's electrical system still relies heavily on fossil fuels. We have shifted from a predominant alliance on coal to natural gas, but still over 40% of the electricity comes from coal. And um, we're only at 2.6% solar energy, which is unimaginable when countries like Germany have 30% solar energy 
That that is insane. Yeah. When I read that, I, I, it is absolutely insane to me. This is a country that has sunshine ninety nine percent of the time. Now, it might be some people who say, "Well, that's disingenuous," because we hope that uh, in this coming month, maybe even on Tuvishvat, they will open up the Eshalim de- uh, solar facility, which will almost double. It's the first large. It's a thermal. It's a combination thermal and, and uh, general photo- photovoltaic plant in the Negev. Um, but still, 5 or 6%. If David Ben-Gurion was the prime minister today, he would have said years ago, the state of Israel needs to become the first carbon-neutral country in the world, and he would have found a way to do it. So I think that we've really suffered from a lack of vision and a leadership that took the path of least resistance or the short-term cost-benefit analysis when we could have been much, much more innovative, conscientious, and I think environmentally responsible. Having said that, Desalination is incredible, and it has a lot of environmental benefits, besides the fact that it reduces the salt in the water system, which is critical for a country that recycles 86% of its sewage, because sewage is always, uh, recycled effluents are always saltier. So by reducing the salt in the original water, we allow farmers a much, much better deal when they take this uh, recycled water. It also frees up an enormous amount of water to share with the Palestinians, okay? The the uh, water crisis in a place like Jordan is unimaginable. Palestinians don't have a lot of water, but they have a lot more than many other countries in Syria. And now there's really no shortage uh, on giving them more. So, so that's a really important thing. The hydro hysteria, which characterized so much of the original debates and negotiations over water resources, really seems a thing of the past when you can produce water for 55 cents for a thousand liters of water. It's just unbelievable. Um, and then, of course, the big challenge now is how are we going to take this unbelievable, um, I would say, water dividend that we can get and, and bring some water to our beleaguered streams and rivers, our surface waters, which are running dry, both because of climate change and the drop in overall precipitation, and like you said, the growing demand. So I gave you a very long answer there, but the truth of the matter is, is that desalination is great. We've just got to figure out how to do it more cleanly in terms of the energy consumption. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, we went from the desalination plant to um, the recycled water plants, so we really saw the entire, you know, what goes into agriculture, what goes into the the drinking and and not the non gray water, I guess they call it. It was just incredible to see that every drop is somehow you know, manufactured from other other sources. Well, that, it's just amazing. Yeah, I think absolutely. And I think that if you look at Israel, for if you take the United States and the more dryland regions, you know the the southwest and places like that, you're looking at the future. It's a fast f- uh, forward. When uh, places like, I don't know, it was in Lubbock, Texas, recently giving a lecture at Texas Tech. Well, they've run out of groundwater there. The, the Ogallala Aquifer was pumped so much that now they're having to go back. And so a lot of the water management uh, innovations that Israel reached just because it was an exigency. We had it really necessity was the mother of invention here. I think we're starting to see this. And in fact, there's some uh, wonderful cooperation between the Great Strait of California and Israel on water technology co- cooperation because California also has had lots of years of drought and could benefit from some of the things that we do here in the country. So I'm going to kind of uh, give you a question out of left field, if you don't mind. Um, although I think you saw the question in advance, so it's not that far out of left field. But you know, this idea of greening the desert, I'm, I'm a big fan of the desert. I think it's beautiful. I think it's its own ecosystem. Desertifica- desertification? What, how do you say you that word? You just said it right. Desertification. You said it precisely. Okay, good. All right. That's a bad thing, but a naturally existing desert that has been around for millions of years, 
is probably a good thing and a hab- and you know a natural habitat for many different plants and animals. Uh, not that many plants and probably not that many animals. Is there a is is there a downside to the greening of the desert that has already been done to moving agriculture into a an area that maybe wasn't meant to have it, even though you know recycled water and the various ways in which Israel can manufacture fresh water, um, notwithstanding, is there any issue with greening the desert? Well, I think there is. Uh, I think we need a little bit of perspective. I mean, the the actual area of the uh, Negev Desert and the Arava which is under cultivation, is, is really a small fraction. The vast majority of lands are either nature reserves or military training grounds. Having said that, there are some uh, places where I might not have developed uh, an agricultural economy. And we see in certain places like the central Arava where the, the groundwater resources have been decimated by poor water management, the fact that you really can't have that large an agricultural operation going on with such modest water resources. Now, um, we all know that the desert has a certain power. It was really, it's no coincidence, if you ask me, that all three of the religion, major monotheistic religions, when you look at their sort of great, um, how should you say, the the inspiration and the transformational experiences that their leadership had. I mean, Jesus had it out in the desert, of course, uh, Moses and the, the burning bush and Sinai, or even the uh, Elijah, the prophet and the s- still small voice in the desert, Muhammad. It's not a coincidence. I think that when people go out to the desert, they have profound spiritual experiences. I always say the desert is like mother nature without the makeup. And therefore, you have a sense of the vastness when you go there. And I think we want to preserve that experience, especially as this will become so crowded and the cities uh, spread out. And it's very, very hard to find a quiet place to, to see, you know, a sea of stars in the sky and really view the, the same landscape that inspired prophets and pilgrims for so long. So, yes, I think we do need to uh, limit the, the level of agriculture. And Israel has up until now to some extent. So, um I don't see the agricultural areas within Israel expanding dramatically. I think we're pretty much as full up as we're going to do. We're not going to really zone more, as far as I can tell, in the foreseeable right. future. That's a big relief to a fan of deserts. Thank you for that. Um, you know, you, you mentioned the military briefly, and, and before we uh, started talking, I was thinking about, you know, Israel has, uh, in addition to environmental concerns, it has some significant security concerns that are probably just as, if not more important than, than almost anything else. Um, in this country, up until very recently, public lands were considered to be very important and were very much cherished. Um, Israel is a, a place that doesn't have a tremendous amount of land. And at least some of that land has to be devoted to military and or security purposes. Do you think Israel, to the extent that it can, has the right blend? And how does the military and these security needs affect environmental policy? Well, it's a bit of a paradox. On the one hand, uh, clearly military uh, activities can be just absolutely destructive and devastating to sensitive ecosystems in the desert. You know, when they went back into the Sinai Desert in 1967, they found tracks from the half tracks and tanks that had been had been running there in 1956. Okay, in other words, when you make a mistake in the desert, these ecosystems take a long time to bounce back, and that's where most of our military training takes place. On the other hand, the, the fact that we've had to set aside so much land for training grounds has actually been to some extent, 
a remarkable boom for nature because you can't really utilize all those areas. The vast majority are sort of on the margins to make sure you don't shoot people in roads and whatever. And so to some extent, you know, you go to like along the Jordan River. Well, that's an amazing ecosystem. It's like the same story you have in the DMZ zone in, in, in North, between North and South Korea. Sometimes military standoff can be very, very good for nature because people basically leave things alone. So uh, you see a bit of both of that. The only thing I would say is problematic in Israel, um, the laws of nature preservation do not trump laws of, of military training. And so if a military unit just makes damage to a nature reserve, there's nothing we can do about it. If they damage a, um, an archaeological site, that's actually protected. So the problem is, although there's very, very conscientious efforts to try to, to educate a young counter of Israeli officers, every three, four years they change. And so it's a constant battle to continue to maintain the awareness and sensitivity so that in the critical areas where the military is supposed to be uh, doing its training, they kind of uh, walk with a light foot. And there's been big progress in that area. And the army does try to be a good environmental actor. It's tough. How do you feel Israel's doing um, generally in terms of implementing renewable and clean energy? Well, that's an easy question. Terribly. We, we, it's, a, it's a huge <laughs> failure. And um, it's, it's really unfortunate because we have such remarkable innovation. Remember the first, you know, serious major electricity plant from the sun was produced by Luz. It was in California. It was an Israeli technology developed in, in, in Jerusalem. And what we're seeing for now for some time is, you know, all the great uh, renewable solar plants in Spain are Israelis. So Israelis are very good at making solar energy in other countries. And here, I think the it took a while for the environmental movement to realize how important energy was. Maybe we want to take some of the responsibility. But I really think that um, we could be doing better. And we have made a commitment to reach 17% renewables by the year 2030 as part of the Paris Agreement. Israel, unlike the United States, uh, doesn't uh, deny the existence of a climate change crisis. And we think that the Paris Accord, the day afterwards, the Minister of Environment was on national news saying, we are with the program and we are going to try to cut back. So I'd like to hope that our poor and slow start will not characterize what I hope will be 10 or 15 years of breathtaking improvement, because we surely have the potential to do it. And of course, we, there is a moral imperative involved here about saving this planet for our children. Imagine a place on Earth where the environment is not a partisan issue. That right? is I can't fathom. <laughs> it, 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 is, um, it is a great tragedy. Now, I went to school in Boston at the Harvard School of Public Health, and I spent my summers working at EPA, and those were the Bush years, uh, the Bush the father, when the head of the EPA, Lee Thomas, was a pretty good administrator. I mean, there was strong environmental things. And when I come back to the States, I feel like Rip Van Winkle, who looks at this unbelievable divide between right and left, and it just seems crazy because in Israel, it's not that way at all. Uh, Gilad Ardan, who is a very, very militant Likud minister, was probably the best minister of environment we ever had. And maybe the second best was Yossi Sarid, who was the you know consummate leftist Zionist. And so you see it today. I'm just now working in the Knesset on a law, which I hope will be uh, passed in the next week or two. We're going to have it on the International uh, Environmental Day. But it's to require the Minister of Environment to offer an annual report to the government of the Knesset on the state of biodiversity and a series of indicators for a species loss, because I really am so concerned about the, the loss of biodiversity here. 
And what was wonderful is Yelkon Kaparan, who's our green member of Knesset, Israel has a green party. I was chairman of it for three years. She replaced me. Now she's in Knesset. Anyway, she put this law through, but she got four members of Likud, three from Kulatu. Half the people who proposed the bill are on the right and half are on the left, and I think that is symbolic. That's that's pretty amazing, and we clearly have some things to learn from Israel about how to um, address environmental issues in a nonpartisan uh, way. Um, but you also said that Israel does need to step up in some regards. Uh, what changes do you think Israel needs to make this year in 2018 to have a healthier environment in times for next Tubishvat? Well, the first thing we need to do is rethink public policies which encourage people to have large families. These policies made sense in the 1950s and 60s. Israel was really dispersely populated. We had tremendous uh, demographic challenges from, from our neighbors. But those policies they don't, don't make sense. Israel's Arab population, the Muslim uh, birth rate is all pretty much now lower than the uh, Jewish birth rate. We need to all citizens of this country, Jews, Arabs, Christians, you name them, get together and think about what would be the carrying capacity and start to slow this spiral, okay? Because the quantity of life in Israel is starting to hurt the quality. So the first thing I would pray for next year is that we could really change this. It doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of momentum involved with demographic growth, but we have to realize that if it was patriotic in the past to have large families, now patriotism requires us to have two kids. In addition to that, I would really like to see us do a lot more in terms of thinking about how are we going to accommodate more people in our cities. In other words, we do have remarkable biodiversity, over 100 mammal species in this country, more bat species than all of Europe put together. It's because of the really the, the meeting place of three continents that happens, Europe, Asia, and Africa, in this land. So just here, I live in Modi'in, you can literally see hyenas roaming the streets because their hyenas have no place to go now, used to be out in the wild. So we have tremendous uh, flora and fauna here, and I'd like to see the government be much, much more vigilant in, in line. We have a good national master plan, but somehow there's some, there's creeping, I would say, urban sprawl that we have to really pull back in. I have other issues, but let's if we could do that, that would be great. And plant more trees. My heavens, Israel still has another 300,000 donors we could plant, and I think we should get to it expeditiously. Well, that should be going on in Tubishvat, right? That's one of it's the, the uh, big day. That's one of the things. Yeah. We're all out there. Well, thank you so much. I mean, this has been really eye-opening, and I think we should maybe check back in with you, Alon, uh, on Tubishvat 2019 yes. to see where we're at and, you know, what whether there's been some progress made over the kind of things you talked about and and this law that you're trying to get through the Knesset, that would be fascinating. And uh, well, you, well, you, know, you know, this population issue is, is significant. Let me just wrap up maybe because it is a, a Jewish holiday. And maybe people know the story of uh, Honey the Circle Maker, who was a, a rabbi in the past. And he saw an old man who was seven years old planting a tree. And he said, what are you planting a tree for? There's no way that you're ever going to live to see the fruits off of this tree because in those days, life expectancy presumably was shorter. And, and the man turned him, this is all from the, from the Talmud. He said, you know, just as my father's planted trees for me, I'm planting for, for the future. And I think this is the, really the, the heart of what they talk about, sustainable development and intergenerational justice. And it didn't start in, in 1987 with Jill Brooklyn's report on, on um, you know, sustainable development, but it really, it's a Jewish notion. 
And I think that the, the dream that we all have in Israel is that this third Jewish commonwealth will bring the blessing to the land that it, we really need and, and dreamed of doing, but it doesn't happen by itself. There's a wonderful environmental movement in Israel, and there's a lot of people in Boston who support that environmental movement. So I want to thank everybody out there. If you're helping Israel, would like to help Israel, you can find all these incredible, you know, 120 environmental groups in Israel, more than you can shake a stick at. And, uh, and it's a partnership because this is the only homeland we have. Well, thank you so much, Alon, and we will let you uh, have the rest of your night. I know it's pretty late there in Tel Aviv, so uh, we thank you again for joining us. Yeah, thank you. And any link, any link that people should go to if they want to find out what those environmental organizations are, or maybe one that's your favorite. That oh, they I'll definitely get my out. favorite: www.population.org.il. So, Chag Sameach to all the listeners, and thanks so much to Dan for for giving me this opportunity to to speak on your podcast and and keep up the good work. Thanks so much. Lila Tov. Lila Tov to all.